You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to obtain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in that secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any way offensive in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Danny. A very good morning, everyone, and I trust you're well. If I haven't met you before, my name's Alex, and a, a warm welcome to those of you who it's uh, your first time here today. Uh, before we start, um, this series covers a lot of territory. Uh, it's not exhaustive in, in covering a lot of the topics that we'll touch upon, and uh, a lot of the topics are very personal. And so you might have questions, and obviously uh, many of our growth groups are, are going through this series in their own groups during the week. They can flesh out a lot of those questions. But maybe you have questions that more personally you'd, you'd like to ask of me or you'd like a bit more detail in a few areas. Uh, every Thursday, we're going to be releasing a, uh, a Q&A segment. Uh, so you can send me your questions. I can't promise to be able to answer all of them. Uh, but that is the address, info at St Andrews. Uh, we'll release this Q&A section um, through our media. Uh, can I also commend, as YC commended, the beautiful story 
uh, written about their daughter, uh, Raymond and Sue. It is a wonderful story uh, for you to be able to read and reflect upon. And also, there are further resources as we think about this series in the sermon notes today. Uh, Let me pray for us as we begin. Uh, Loving God and Heavenly Father, it says in the book of Hebrews that your word is living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It pierces into our very bones and marrow. It lays our thoughts open and bare. Nothing is hidden from you. Lord God, we do thank you that you speak to us through your word. You tell us about yourself, you tell us about us, you tell us about how we can live in the world that you've created, in the bodies that you've created. You tell us about your son Jesus and the way of salvation in him. But we want to confess that often we find your word difficult for us to understand or to accept. So as we think about it again today, Lord, help us not to turn away in unbelief or in hardness of heart or in misunderstanding. But would you guide us by your spirit so we'd rightly understand your word and apply its truths to our lives. Amen. There is something beautifully intimate about handmade products. About a month or so ago, together with a a group of people from St Andrews, I uh, visited a carpet-making shop just just outside of Ephesus in Turkey. This was a shop that was training and employing local ladies in making handmade carpets. Uh, In a world nowadays where so many carpets are largely mass-produced in factories with machines, we were told that that handmade carpets are very much a dying art. Uh, These carpets are made from wool or silk, uh, woven on a loom, woven together, with uh, various threads being knotted together, normally double knotted together to to produce a pattern. Apparently, every square inch of carpet can have up to a a thousand knots in it. It requires a great skill, experience, a lot of patience. Some carpets can take a year of full-time work to produce. Now, maybe you like artisanal products. Now, I used to think the word artisanal meant um, misshapen and expensive, but I later found out that artisanal means traditional, as opposed to mass-produced or machine-made, but, but, but individually made. Uh, maybe you like to make things uh, for yourself, uh, pottery, ceramics, glassware, jewellery. I like the idea of being able to make things. I have a hope one day of being able to make hardwood furniture, but I'm, I'm useless at a lot of this sort of stuff. I don't have competencies. My wife, Megan, on the other hand, is really good at making things, beautiful drawings, paintings. Uh, she crochets a lot. If we happen to have a night at home together and we watch a movie, we, we multitask. She'll crochet. I'll eat a bag of crisps. Um, I don't know what you like to hand make, but there is something beautifully intimate about something made by hand. Uh, You've created something from the very beginning. You know everything about it, even its flaws, the flaws that maybe no one else sees. You you see those flaws. Uh, You created it. You spent a lot of time on it and you care for it. There's nothing else exactly like it. It's unique and it's special to you. That's the way God sees our bodies. In Psalm 139, David says to God, I praise you because I am fearfully 
and wonderfully made. Uh, we are all unique, handcrafted, intimately known, individually made by God. Uh, we're in this series called uh, The Body, A Guide for Occupants, and we're looking at how the Bible answers those big questions in life about our bodies. Uh, who am I? What am I doing here? How can I live in this world with the body that God has made me? How can I, how can I function best? Uh, last week, we began seeing that, that our bodies are made in the image of God. This week, we're going to continue to see that how God made us and how He relates to us. But this week's study is far more intimate. God is not the, the distant and detached maker. No, instead, He is very much involved and interested and familiar with all our ways. Now, it's often said that to really understand ourselves, we need to understand God. So as we think about this passage, we're going to see two points. First of all, the limitless God, and then secondly, us, people who are fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, one commentator said that any small thoughts that we have about God are magnificently transcended by this psalm. Uh, King David, the author of this psalm, describes a God who is limitless, without constraints. Omni, that little four-letter Latin word, omni means all. And in the first three stanzas of this psalm, we see, we see the God who is described as omniscient, omnipresent omnipotent. He is all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful. In verses 1 to 6, he's the God who is all-knowing. He's omniscient. Um, I know a few of you have PhDs here. Often people with PhDs have a lot of knowledge, but it's a lot of knowledge in a very limited area. They can't know everything. No one can know everything. No one can know everything about everything. So, for instance, if I have a problem with my heart, I'm not going to go to my tailor, I'm going to go to a cardiologist. Or the other way around, if I have a problem with this jacket, I'm going to go to a tailor, I'm not going to go to my cardiologist. Human knowledge is limited in its span, but it's also limited in its time span. We might know a little of the past, something of the present, and maybe a little bit about the future, but God is unlimited in his knowledge. David says in verse 1, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. David says to God, You know me. You know me. You, you discern me. It's not just a superficial and, and limited knowledge. It's a knowledge of what David does. You know when I sit and when I rise. It's a knowledge of what David thinks. You discern my thoughts from afar. It, it, it's a knowledge of, of, of David that is limitless. He says, you are familiar with all my ways. In verse 4, you know my words even before they leave my tongue. Maybe when you were a teenager, you had the sullen thought, no one really knows me or understands me. My parents don't know me or understand me. My friends don't know me or understand me. My siblings, my teachers, no one really knows me or understands me. Um, in the story, Alice in Wonderland, Alice is asked a question that really unsettles her. Uh, she finds it hard to answer. You might remember the scene. Let me read it for you. Uh, the caterpillar and Alice looked at each other for some time in silence. At last, 
the caterpillar, removed the hooker out of its mouth and addressed her in a languid, sleepy voice. Who are you? said the caterpillar. Well, this was not an encouraging opening for a conversation. Alice replied rather shyly, I hardly know, sir, just at present. At least I know, knew who I was when I got up this morning, but I think I must have changed several times since then. What do you mean, said the caterpillar sternly, explain yourself. I, I, I can't explain myself, I'm afraid, sir, said Alice, because, because I'm not myself, you see. How would you answer that question, who are you? Now, maybe you don't know where to start. Uh, do you start with your family or your, or your job or your experiences? But that's difficult because all of those things are susceptible to change. Or maybe you talk about your personality, your fears, your hopes. But then again, a lot of those things you're not certain about yourself. So you, you might not be able to answer that question, who, who am I? But David says to God, you know all about me, nothing is hidden from you. In verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, for, too lofty for me to attain. In other words, God, you know me better than I know myself. Now, you might sometimes feel as though there is no one who really knows you, no one who really understands and yet there is a God who sees everything and knows everything and is with you all the time and who knows everything about you. He knows about your past and your future. He knows about your triumphs and your fears. He knows about your flaws and your joys. He knows all your days. Nothing is hidden from him. Nothing is kept secret. He is the all-knowing God, but also in verses 7 to 12, He is the all-present, the omnipresent God. David says from verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. It's like David is conducting a thought experiment. Um, he thinks about all those places way up in the heavens or down in the depths, all those places that if he had the ability to go there, God would still be present in all, all those places. You might remember the prophet Jonah tried to flee from God. God told him to go to preach in Nineveh. He went the other way to Tarshish. But God caught up with him in a storm. David has better sense. He's saying to God, God, even if I tried, there's no way I could escape from your presence. There is no place that I could go where you would not be first. But still, it's almost as if, as David contemplates the God who knows all about him, that he begins to feel a little bit unsettled and he wants to get away from God. Because deep down in all of us, we all feel a little bit uncomfortable about being known completely. Way back when I was at university, I read a book called Being and Nothingness. It was about the French, uh, the, it was written by the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. And I, I pretty much can't remember anything of the book, <laughs> except for this illustration. Uh, he said, Sartre said, imagine yourself in a room and you see a keyhole and there is a light coming through the keyhole and you bend down and look through the keyhole and you can see a room full of people. They don't know you're watching. Now, there's something really empowering about being able to see people, seeing everything that they're doing, and yet they don't know that you're watching. Um, you can see them, they can't see you. It's like you have a one-way mirror. 
But then in Sartre's illustration, as soon as you're, you're, you're looking through the keyhole and feeling powerful, suddenly there's a noise behind you. Um, and you turn around and you see that there is another keyhole. And you see a little light, uh, sorry, a little eye looking through that keyhole. And you discover that someone is watching you as you're watching somebody else. And you realise, suddenly, instead of feeling powerful, you're feeling open, insecure, vulnerable, out of control. That's what Sartre says. We want to be in control of how people see us. We want to control the access, the information that people have about us. Once you're out of control, you, you, you feel insecure. Why? Well, because we don't want to be caught out. We don't want to be found out saying something or doing something that we're ashamed of. Uh, we don't want to be watched to have everything that we say and do and think known by somebody else. Because we know that deep down there's always something that we want to hide, something that we feel guilty about. But David seems to break through uh, this sense of being threatened by God's presence. Um, instead of feeling threatened by God's all-knowing, all-present character, he feels comforted by it, that God knows him, that God wants to be with him, that God is there with him, even when... Humanly speaking, he feels utterly alone and abandoned by everybody else. He knows that God is still with him. So God is all-knowing. He's all-present. But then thirdly, he's, he's all-powerful. He's omnipotent. Verses 13 to 18. Remember, David is writing in the 10th century BC. This is before obstetricians and ultrasounds. Sure, he knows that there are two people involved in his production, <laughs> but he also recognises from verse 13 that, that God was the one who put him together. He recognises God's creative power, that God was involved in every step of his formation. For you created my innermost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. That, that, that word used for knit is the same word that is used to describe the making, the weaving together of a carpet. God was there in the secret place in his mother's womb, knitting him together. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed body. David says, God, you made me. You saw me. You were there from, from the very beginning. Now, again, verse 16, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Even before my day of birth, even before I took my first breath, God, you're in control. You were there. You know all my days. You've planned them all before any of them came into being. Now, God, David is not saying that he is without imperfection and flaws, but when he thinks about God's creative power, it's like he's overwhelmed. He bursts forth in praise with that very famous line, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Look, God has made billions of people, but we are not mass-produced. We've each been handcrafted with infinite care by the ultimate artisan, David says that we've each been knitted together in our mother's womb. God knows you intimately, your beauty and your flaws. He sees everything about you 
and he delights in you. He knows all of your days because this is the limitless God, all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful. Now, to be fearfully and wonderfully made means each life is precious to God. Now, let me trace out a few implications. First, for the unborn. Uh, For the next couple of minutes, I'm going to speak with you about abortion. I've never preached on this topic before. Uh, And let's just say from the outset that abortion is an extremely, extremely sensitive and emotive issue. It's important to recognise the deep feelings that people have about this topic. Both sides of the debate on on abortion believe they are doing what is good. Both sides, pro-choice, pro-life, believe that their views and their actions are necessary and righteous. Because there is this conflict. Ethicists call it the, the world of competing sorrows, which means any way you cut it, whatever decision is made about pregnancy, there is going to be some kind of harm and pain and sorrow. You see, there are two sorrows. On on the one hand, there are the needs and the feeling of a woman who very much feels as though she's lost autonomy and control over her body and her life, and we need to have empathy for that. And there are many reasons, many reasons, why people do abortions. There could be lifestyle factors, simply not wanting to have a child. Uh, There could be Uh, that, that, that a woman feels completely unprepared to care for this child. There could be serious economic factors at play. Uh, situations where she doesn't feel as though she has the support structures necessary to raise this child. Or there could be relational pressures brought upon, upon by the father of this child or the, the, the family members of the mother. Sometimes there could be the trauma of sexual assault and on rare occasions there is serious threat to the mother's life herself. Her very life is at risk. But then, on the other hand, there are the needs of a unique and new human life that is going to be destroyed by this intervention. Either way, there are sorrows. The Guttmacher Institute, a leading pro-choice group, estimate that globally there are about 120 million unwanted pregnancies every year. 120 million unwanted pregnancies, 61% of those end in termination or abortion. That's roughly 73 million babies each year globally. It's bigger than the population of the United Kingdom. Now, that's either 73 million babies whose lives have been ended through intervention or 73 million mothers who've exercised their right to choose. So, how do we handle this extremely sensitive issue? Like I said, I encourage you to do further research. There are are resources in the bulletin. And I'm very much aware that I'm a man speaking about an issue that seriously and deeply affects women. And I'm out of my depth. But how, how we answer this heavy issue very much depends on when we think life begins. David says, You knit me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you in the secret place when I was woven together. My, uh, your eyes saw my unformed body. 
Now, the traditional Christian view, and certainly what Psalm 139 seems to be saying here, is that life begins at conception. The unformed body, the body that we have before we start breathing, before our day of birth, is very much a life that is precious to God. David says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. All the days ordained for me. God creates and sustains you every single second of your existence. It's every single day. And if God ordains every single day for you, that means there is a plan, there is a reason. From conception to our very last breath, God is in control. He's in charge. His power overshadows every single moment of our days. And it's for this reason that everybody over the centuries who holds to the doctrine of God seriously, from the ancient Jews to the early Christians, they've all said that abortion is wrong. Why? Well, because you're putting yourself in the place of God. And God is the one who's sovereign over our lives. Life at the very, very, very beginning in the womb, that is where it's at its most fragile. Yes, people say, well, don't I have the right to choose what happens to my body? You know, if this happens, if this child is born, then that'll harm me. It won't just be an inconvenience, it could harm me and, and cause me all sorts of trouble in this life. Shouldn't I have control about what happens to me in this very difficult area of life? And that is, that is a heavy argument that needs to be listened properly. But also Psalm 139 is pointing us to the God who is limitless, who is all-knowing, who is all-powerful, who is in control of all things and who produces life at the very moment of conception. Now, as I said, there's a lot more that should be said on this issue, but one thing that's always bothered me about justifying abortion, except in the situations where a mother's life is threatened, such as the example of an ectopic pregnancy, is that any argument that's used to justify the ending of an unborn baby could also be used to justify the ending of a newborn baby. If I put it the other way around, if you can't kill a newborn who is just as physically dependent upon support and who is just as unaware, unconscious of what is going on, then neither can you kill a baby in the womb months earlier. Both acts destroy an unfolding human life. Now look, I know this is very hard, and I know for some of you, um, this is a live issue. This is very real and personal. And some of you carry around the pain and sorrow of this very intimately. Just as unborn babies are created in the image of God, all of us, no matter what we've done, are created in the image of God. All of us no matter what we've done, are deserving of dignity and respect. And if you're carrying around the burden of this guilt, please hear from me. God sees you and knows you. And in Jesus, he offers grace and forgiveness to you. Just as he offers grace and forgiveness 
to every one of us, no matter what we've done. So the first implication, the unborn child is made fearfully and wonderfully by God. The second implication is the disabled person who is made fearfully and wonderfully by God. Now the joy and wonder expressed in this psalm about our bodies is not always felt. It's not always the experience of those who have disabilities or those who have a child with a disability. Instead, there's confusion and incomprehension and often much sorrow. There's often the question, God, if we're so fearfully and wonderfully made, why did this happen? Why did this happen to me? Certainly, parents of special needs children have often asked that question. Megan and I have asked that question. God, did we do something somehow to cause this? Sometimes there are proven medical reasons for disability, but more commonly there aren't clear reasons. And almost always it's not the direct fault of the parents. So where does this leave us? How how do we think about our bodies as fearfully and wonderfully made when it comes to disability? What's God's plan for our bodies? Well, there's a conversation between God and Moses that I think for us is instructive. In Exodus chapter 4, God appears to Moses in the burning bush and tells Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. Moses is not keen. And he says to God in verse 10, Pardon your servant, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. Moses seems to be hinting at a disability of some form. But look at what God says back to him. In verse 11, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now think about what God is saying here. Think about the impact. Not only is God not denying responsibility for those conditions like deafness and blindness that we normally consider to be disabilities, but rather, to our surprise... He takes credit for them. God says these things come from him and are made by him. Joni Erickson Tata, who became a quadriplegic at the age of 17, comments on this passage and she says, Does God cause blindness or does he allow it? Does he plan for a person to be born deaf or does he permit it? In short, does God want disease? The key here is how we use the word wants. God doesn't want disease to exist in the same way that he enjoys it. He hates disease, just as he hates all the results of sin, death, guilt, sorrow, for example. But God must want disease to exist in the sense that he wills or chooses for it to exist. For if he didn't, he would wipe it out immediately. Do you see what she means here? Simply this, God doesn't delight in disability but he allows disability. God is sovereign over disability. We need to understand this. There are no accidents in God's worlds. Nothing about your bodies is arbitrary or random. And we need to acknowledge, just as as Job came to acknowledge, that in this lifetime, very often, we won't know the reason why hardship and sufferings happen to us. 
These reasons will be kept hidden from us. But I think part of our struggle in understanding disability is in our unwillingness to personally embrace weakness. As much as we recognise at an intellectual level that our bodies are imperfect and broken, we don't want to accept this at a personal level because we are conditioned into thinking that we should have the good life, that we're entitled to the good life. Our world tells us that we should expect to look and feel a particular way. We should expect to hold off the effects of ageing with the right cosmetics and products. We should expect to have our aches and pains dealt with with the right medicines and procedures. We should expect to have the right job and the right income and the right lifestyle with the right education. We should expect that what we plan will largely come out in reality. And so we esteem the aesthetically the athletically strong, the aesthetically beautiful, the financially successful. We do not aspire to weakness. Again, Joni Erickson tells the story of once trying to buy a horse with her sister, and her sister and her were examining this horse in great detail, looking for any hidden weakness. And then later on, she writes, reflecting on this experience, weak spots. It's scary to think of having your weak spots exposed, isn't it? Weaknesses have a way of either raising or lowering your value in the eyes of others. Now, the Bible says that God alone is perfect. By contrast, all people are broken and weak in every aspect of life, relationally, emotionally, spiritually, morally, physically. We try to hide our weaknesses, but the weakness that is most difficult for us to hide is the physical. We cannot deny our physical weaknesses. Perhaps that's why disability scares us. We try all we can to avoid it or to hide disability. We find it extremely awkward. Physical brokenness and disability reminds us that our lives are finite, that we are helpless. Like the disabled, we're dependent upon others, we're dependent upon God, and we prefer that not to be the case. Perhaps that's why God allows disability, to remind us that we are equally, all of us, equally, fearfully and wonderfully made. And all of us, equally, are helpless and utterly, utterly, utterly dependent upon God's grace, all of us. Now let me close for a moment by talking with you about shame. Some of us don't feel at all as though we've been fearfully and wonderfully made. Instead, we might feel a deep shame about our appearance. We might feel a deep shame about what we've done with our bodies. We might feel a deep shame about what has been done to our bodies by somebody else. And we hold that shame very closely to us. It is a constant presence in our life. And so what do we do about that shame? Hebrews 4 tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus walked the road, our road of suffering, long before we did. He experienced the worst of human life in this broken world. 
There is no kind of pain that you can go through that Jesus doesn't know intimately and better than you do. And this is the Jesus who embraced us in all our brokenness. This is the Jesus who healed the lame and the blind and the demon-possessed. This is the Jesus who touched the leper and embraced the ceremonially unclean. This is the Jesus who ate with the outcasts, the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes, and said to them, your sins are forgiven. And this is the Jesus who we're told in Isaiah had no beauty, no majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him, He was despised, he was rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected and to experience pain. When he went to the cross, he was abandoned and humiliated and abused, scorned and rejected. Even though he didn't deserve it, he took upon himself all our shame, all our sins, so that we could be embraced by God and forgiven. That's how much God loves us. Look, God knows everything about you, all your secret and hidden thoughts. He knows your beauty, he knows your flaws, he knows the number of your days. And in Jesus Christ, he delights in you. He willingly gave you his son so that you can be known by God and know him. And therefore, regardless of what we go through in life, we can join with David and say, God, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Let us pray. Search me, God, and know my hearts. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord God, thank you that you see us and you know us, that you formed us, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made despite all our flaws, despite the shame and the guilt that we might hold within us. Thank you that your son became one of us, and experience the brokenness of this life and knows everything that we go through and that he is with us. He is with us by the Spirit, by his Spirit within us. And thank you, Lord, that in every circumstances of life, you know us and you care for us. All our days were ordained for you, by you. And so, Lord, help us to live our lives seeking to honour you take our sins to you knowing that you forgive us, to seek to use our time, our bodies that you've given us for your purposes and your glory and Lord to walk with you in faith, to praise you for what you have given us, bodies fearfully and wonderfully made. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.